This is Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Chris, Bill, it's good to see you guys uh, once again. And thanks for being willing to uh, jump on. I know, obviously, Chris, this is your podcast, but I texted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) it used to be podcast formerly known as Speakeasy Theology. Well, I texted you and Bill today, which uh, is Friday. And I said, look, I chatted a little bit with our senior pastor at church, um, Steve Spears, and then Megan Barrett, who also preaches uh, for us often. And we were texting. I'm not preaching this week, but we were texting a little bit about the text, and it made me want to preach these these passages this week. And so I asked you guys, hey, last minute, but could we just record an episode? And you both, I won't say graciously, but you both agreed to do so. <laughs> I was gracious. Uh, okay, yeah, Bill was gracious. <laughs> but I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Yes, Chris. Chris Green, thank you for gracing us with your presence on your own podcast and not Staying gone after you just abruptly left <laughs> when we told you you didn't have to be here. Yes, I think the play-by-play was we'll just leave, and so I left. But immediately came back, like as you said, Bill, like like a boyfriend, boyfriend. who forgot his keys yeah, after storming back, off. You stormed off the podcast, and then you came back like a boyfriend who stormed out of the house, slammed the door, and then realized he forgot his keys and had to shamefully come back in. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. That's pretty much it. The funny thing was, you guys were laughing so much that you didn't hear me saying Chris doesn't. Tr- Chris Green doesn't trust Brewer and I enough to not be to leave and stay left and have us just do this podcast in his name. Oh, yeah, that's 100% the case. He doesn't trust us enough at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't blame him. It is true. I mean, so, everything you're doing now confirms my suspicions about what. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't disagree with you for not trusting us. I didn't say that. <laughs> right. You think it's bad now? Like, just wait till we get into these scriptures. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's Friday. I'm tired. Let's do this. This is so edifying, I'm sure, for everyone. who They tuned into this podcast to hear us talk about scriptures and instead uh, petty squabbles. Yeah, like, I'm concerned about the person who's stayed on this long. Like, for you, we should start talking about the Bible right now. Like, <laughs> Yes, let's do it. I agree. So, this week, we are now two weeks beyond. This is the second week beyond Pentecost. Um, last week was Trinity Sunday. And so, for those of you who use the lectionary... Um, this week we have two tracks that are kind of optional. So the first Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 12. This is Abram's calling. And then the second track is from Hosea five, um, and then gets into, gets into chapter six. I I'd really, I'd like to start actually with this Hosea text and then we can bounce around, uh, kind of, kind of wherever, I'll read it. It's it's not too terribly long. 
Thus says the Lord, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will beg my favor. Come, let us return to the Lord, for it is he who has torn and he who will heal us. He has struck down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I, I, I just, I mean, Bill, you start us off. This isn't a, <laughs> I, I'm just, I just think this passage is incredible. I mean, just to read it, it's so striking. Um, but that's why this it's it's because of this passage that I wanted to wanted to talk to you guys this week. Well, I don't want to. I, I want to hear what you have to say. When we spoke on the phone earlier, you were passionate about it, and so the only the funny thing for me is when I turn to this in my Bible, um, verses Hosea six three. I see written in here that it was our it was our twenty nineteen verse for the church, uh, for, our, for the year of 2019. And I remember specifically, and this was just before COVID, which is cool. I, uh, we were talking about, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord and how there's that tendency for us to learn first things and then spend the rest of our life defending those first things. And that verse that says, let us know, and then let us press on to know the Lord just speaks to that. Uh, I think Brennan Manning one time said it this way, you know, settlers know the Lord. Explorers know the Lord and press on to know the Lord. And so I remember, you know, that was the thrust for the year was this ongoing exploration, holding loosely what we know, living within the boundaries of the creed. But being adventurous, um, being playful, as Augustine says, and, you know, even in our interpersonal relationships, like know yourself, but press on to know yourself, because that's one of the ways you press on to know the Lord, know the people that are in life with you and then press on to know the people in life with you, because that's how you know and press on to know the Lord. And so there's just this sense of how quickly we make opinions now, how fast we hear a piece of information and it cements instantaneously. Uh, and not just theologically or doctrinally, but the way in which we draw lines in the sand very fast in our marriages and our friendships at work, the way we view our jobs, the way we view how our life is going, we decide so fast and then we stop pressing on to know and we just live in that original or first knowledge. And I think that for us, you know, at, at Salem Tabernacle and Beacon here, it was really prophetic to have to have the Holy Spirit speak that explorational spirit over the church just before COVID hit. 
and we were going to be absent from each other for so long. Uh, that idea of knowing and then pressing on to know and not just settling for the first ideas uh, was very helpful for us. So it's actually kind of uh, a bit of holy nostalgia for me to turn to Hosea 6 in this particular Bible that I have in front of me and see that that was our verse for the year. It's, it's, it's more meaningful now than I think it was when we were you know, talking about it in 2019. Looking back, I see that our church has been able to do that. And it's part of the uh, spirited nature of who we are post-COVID was that we, we know him, but we also press on to know him. We know each other, but we press on to know each other. And I think even with our own selves, I, I, I know myself, but I've pressed on to know more about me and have found some, some new things. Over, over the years. So that's, uh, I'll leave it there, but that was, uh, it was very special to us. Hosea 6.3. Thanks, man. I, I love that. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope God's response to, <laughs> to your church is doing that wasn't. <laughs> Your declarations of love to me don't last any longer than the morning do. <laughs> Man, you're really you're really good at affirming people there. You're, you just la- you, you just laughed at me hysterically. <laughs> Sorry, man. Just says me so tickled because that's the very next. <laughs> well, well, we stopped it at verse three. Yeah, right. right. No, no, it's good. It's when you're good. when you're picking your verse for the year, it's like a tattoo, you can't put the whole thing on there. So. I, man, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Yeah. What What do you think, Chris? What anything come to mind? Be here, careful what you say, Chris, because Brewer will <laughs> point and laugh. That's actually why I desperately wanted to talk to you guys about this passage, because I want to see if I can tee up both of you just to which, which like, strike you down. It's frustrating because I've I've publicly criticized you for not being like happy <laughs> and funny, and so I kind of am proud of you for laughing in my face, but also wishing that you were laughing in somebody else's face right now. <laughs> It's all love. It's all love. I think it'll probably be obvious why I'm drawn to this line, but the opening line of the passage, I will return to my place. That's what's striking me right now. (laughs) (laughs) In all seriousness, though, it's a startling claim. And I think a deeply, like a one, a deeply mysterious and pregnant claim that God is, I mean, this is throughout Hosea, throughout the prophets. God is fed up, as we say, with Israel. And his threat slash promise is, I will return again to my place. Which, of course, at, kind of at the first pass is is simply threat. It, when you first see it, it's just, it sounds as if God is saying, I'm done with you. You know, I'm the boyfriend who's walking out and slamming the door. And of course we get that language everywhere, right? In the prophets that God is the jilted lover or the, you know, the, the, the husband who's, who's been betrayed. But I think what's, if if you kind of stay with that language of, I will return to my place. And then you ask, well, where is the place of God? Where, where is he going when he goes away from us? And 
he's he's coming nearer, not going further away, right? And kind of recognizing that every time I'm aware of God, when it seems that God has come to me, that really, not just you know figuratively, but really, that means God is having to create distance in order for me to become aware. And this is why, you know, in the language of scripture, in the language of the Psalms, the secret place of the most high is within me. Like God's place that to which he withdraws is not, you know, out at the edges of the universe. As one TV evangelist once said, whatever that would mean. No, God's place is in the depths of my heart, like in in the depths and in the depths below those depths. And I think, Bill, this is why seeking on to know yourself is inseparable from coming to know the Lord. Like God awareness and self-awareness are bound up together. They, they are inseparable because the Lord's home is in, in those depths. And, of course, coming to know that mystery that requires pressing like you can't you can't settle for the thoughts that most immediately occur to you you have to press for that kind of awareness you have to contend for it in some sense i mean this reminds me of what you said chris about martin luther's take on the ascension right Jesus ascends so that he might be closer to us. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's it. And I think the, I I was talking with Ken Archer the other day about this, that I think our account of the Ascension is, is kind of a test case for what our theology, what, what we actually believe about God's relation to us and, and our, well, that's the wrong way to put it of our relation to God and how, how God is with us. Right. And I think most of us still have a sense of God's place is far from us. Like, even if it's not, you know, as silly as that, that one account, right. That God's place is the the temple in heaven. And that's, you know, in the far north of the universe, that was the phrase, the far north of the universe. Even if we don't take it that quote unquote, literally, I think all of us do, maybe not all, but a lot of us do sense for God to go to his places, to go somewhere far from me. Like if he, if he leaves me alone, he's truly leaving me alone. Right. He, God is going to God's fortress of solitude. Yes. Right? <laughs> Where and we can't follow. Exactly. When what the saints and the prophets tell us is God's fortress of solitude is nearer to me than I am to myself. It's yes. within the heart of my heart. Right. And I, and I think this is why, I mean, part of the reason I was so charged up even in talking about these texts, again, because of like so much in my life, coming back to this study that we're in the midst of in, uh, in Colossians is that 
you know, we, we have such competitive theological um, models, right? Such that it makes sense that God's going to retreat away from us and not nearer to us. Mm. Um, but that, that retreat scare quotes there of God to use your language, Chris, nearer to us than we are to ourselves because the truth of the matter is that we are made in the image of, of this God. And so God's life is not in competition with ours. Our life is not in competition with God's not truly. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately there's no, there is only his life that that we borrow that he shares with us. Right. So when we say made in his image, I think most of us again, hear separation and difference. We hear a kind of prototype, a thing Mm -hmm. on which we are modeled, but we are a separate thing. Yeah. God is the, or Christ in particular is the you know prototype for, but what's being claimed by the apostles, Paul, especially maybe is that we are sharing in his image, right? Not, not just that we're made in his likeness. We are, but it's possible for us to be made in his likeness only because we already share that image, right? We, we, we are at, when you, when you come down to it, my life just is his life being shared with me. And again, we're back at self-awareness and God-awareness being inseparable, right? Which is you know, a dominant theme in Augustine and, well, in Christian theology and spirituality broadly. Like, it, you just can't come to know God without coming to see yourself in that light, right? Right. My heart is restless till it finds its rest in thee is not, I mean, we, we read that so shallowly, but this it seems like this is actually much closer to what Augustine is getting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And you can see it. I mean, here in this passage, as Bill's comment brought up, kind of surfaced for us, like God threatens slash promises to return to his place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And he knows that in their distress, they will beg my favor. And I think that of course it's like this subtlety there, right? When they beg favor, is that the same thing as acknowledging guilt and seeking his face or, or not? Right. And is it the, is it the begging that's an issue or is it what they're begging for? Mm-hmm. But he knows they're going to say, come, let, you know, let's return to the Lord. He is torn. He will heal. He's struck down. He will bind us up. And, you know, after two days and so on, like he knows what they're going to say, which is both right and wrong, right? That there's a way in which what they're saying is true, mm-hmm. but not as they mean it. Mm-hmm. Like what they intend is not, in fact, true, but what their words suggest are, like, you know, their, their words are suggesting something that is true. Mm-hmm. And and then then God comes to what shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? Yeah, and I think that is a kind of like you don't you've not come to an awareness yet. You've not you've not yet known yourselves well enough to accept how I'm present to you and you know who I am to you. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is, it, you know, l- allow me to impose, I mean, some of my own readings. I mean, of course, this is deadly serious. You know, I mean, they're in their distress. They will beg for my favor, right? And so you can hear, I mean, I think you can pretty easily read into this, like, I mean, there's hope, obviously. He's he's torn, he'll heal, he's struck down, he'll, he'll bind up. But, I mean, also anguish in that, right? A kind of, you know, desperation. Um, but when I hear, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Right? I mean, this is one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. It strikes me in all sorts of ways. You know, like the way that, you know, that you just said, but it also, there's also a way that it strikes me. I I can hear it as being really playful in that way that someone can be playful who has a deeper and truer and better sense of actually what's going on. You know, what am I going to do with you? Of -hmm. course, God knows what God is going to do with them. Yeah. I don't want to get like ahead of ourselves, but that's part of the reason I'm, I hear it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And I think, I think it's like realize like this is, this is a drama, right? This is a love story. Yes. That's playing out here between God and his beloved. And she doesn't know herself as well as she thinks she does. And she doesn't know God therefore as well as she thinks she does. Like that's, that's what Hosea is describing. And I, I think you can see the shift in the kind of false, the false confidence that they have about what God will do. Come, let us return to the Lord. He is torn. He will heal. He is struck down. He will bind us up after two days on the third day. If we press on, his appearing is as sure as the dawn. So they're, they're drawing on, he will come to us like the showers. So they're, they're drawing on nature metaphors. Like what they're insisting here is that this is predictable. God will come. God can't not come, right? God will be, God is a force of nature that we can in, in some way predict, if not quite always get a handle on. But maybe also sometimes get a handle on. Bill, <clears throat> I always feel like I always feel like when I have a question, I, I ask it in a way that feels like I pop everything that was just said. So, without doing that, when you look at this idea of God saying, "I'm going to go to my place," and then they're saying, "Let us press on to know the Lord," and then you couple this with the part of the gospel text for the same Sunday where the woman with the issue of blood presses through the crowd. Yes. What? And, and Chris, I'm, I'm asking both of you this. I, I, lo- I love, I personally love the most when I hear you guys talk about this kind of thing, there seems to be some type of distance that God creates and, and, and tell me even if my question, if I'm asking it the wrong way, it's fine. There seems to be some kind of distance that God is creating where, you know, this person presses toward him. Like there's, there's space there for her to move toward him. Uh, you know, even in, in basically all the traditions of the church and 
even the most liturgical with the Eucharist, there's this idea that we come forward and we, we traverse space to go to uh, the table. In the, in the track one text, Abraham mm-hmm. is leaving a place to go to a different place that God mm-hmm. will meet him in and, and deliver him to. You know, Jacob goes to a place, lays down and says, this is the house of the Lord. Like there's, there seems to be some sense where God allows there to be distance Mm-hmm. for us to move toward him in. Mm-hmm. So explain explain how that works with what you're saying about how his his leaving is, is a him drawing closer. What role does that distance that he allows, like even in the crowd, he's there to be touched. So he's there, he's present. He He's drawn close enough to her for her to reach out to touch him. We know this. Mm-hmm. But what role does distance play what role does famine for the word of god play what role does you know that sense that i have to move to toward him whether it's to the table whether it's metaphorically in my own life whether it's this literal moment uh, with the woman with the issue of blood why why the space and what is that doing for us Mm -hmm. well you're you said it exactly rightly i think he creates distance what we've kind of assumed, I think, is oh, that man. God just is distant. Come on. Right. The only way there can be distance is for him is, to create it. Is for him to create it. Yeah. And he creates it, and again, you said it, so that we can move toward him. But where he is is always closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's just where he is. Like that's that is his nature. We exist in him. We live and move and have our being in him. Our lives just are his life shared with us. That's just, that's all we are, right? So the distance is created and it's created for us. He makes room for us, the room we need. Mm -hmm. And he makes time for us, the time we need. You know, the language of the Psalms again, our times are in his hands. Mm. Yeah. He's generating tailor fitting Mm-hmm. The distance we need, the fit of awareness, a, a fit, a fitted to our awareness, right? So, my experience of God, my awareness of God, or awareness of the seeming absence of God, like all of that is created. It's graced, it's purposeful, but it's created. The uncreated life of God is what's sustaining me in being. It's holding me. It's holding me together. It's giving, it's, it is my life. Does that help? Does that get at? Yeah. So is this, is is how we get this wrong? Is it because like we, is it that we impose on God what this would look like if we were doing it? So like if I was creating space because people weren't listening to me, that space would be the space of indifference. Yes. Space of anger, the space of penalty, it would be my withdrawing to, to hurt, to harm. So and so then we, we impose to protect that on him. yourself. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. So we impose that on him and just say, like, well, he has better reasons for doing that than we do. So that's what makes him God. But you're you're it sounds like you're suggesting categorically he does this in, in categorical different ways and reasons than we do. Like he creates space not to let us know how bad we've been, but he creates space that is charged with the 
mission and anointing for us to move through that space finding him. Yeah, absolutely. It's that that repentance, right, is something he makes possible by how he touches my awareness. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so on with every every, every grace works in that way, right? My faith is his grace given to me to be mine. Mm-hmm. And just as my life is his life given to me to be mine, and my thoughts are his thoughts given to me to be mine, it it is he is my life and yours. And we we don't really believe that, right? We think that God is having to overcome the distance that's just naturally there between him and us. Like he's kind of always having to struggle past these insurmountable differences. <laughs> and that's the measure of his love, right? The measure of his love is that he, even though we're totally unworthy, he you know pushes past his own disgust reflex and cares for us anyway. I mean, I, I think this is what we believe. I think this is kind of stitched into our bones, right? That yeah, we, like it almost seems like he, it almost seems like we're more confident in the distance that we created between us and him that he now has to traverse as opposed to him creating a holy distance between us and him for us to traverse. And, and, and I would assume be sanctified in the pressing process. Like every, every step of the way is us finding him. Well, and that's, uh, yeah. And I think sanctification is apt, right? Because I think this is what, I mean, so the way that I, that I think about it using this language, the distance that God creates is nothing less than room for us to become ourselves. That's really good, man. I like that. So, yeah. To come to come to ourselves, which is where he is. That's it. Like coming to yourself is inseparable from returning to the Lord. And that's in part, right? Because yourself is nothing but the grace of the Lord given to you in a unique way. For for your sake, but also for the sake of the world, right? And God returning to his place, right, is cutting the path for you to return to your place and find out that God is your home and you are God's home. This is everywhere in scripture, right? Like God dwells in us, we dwell in God. And all of that is, that's why I have to attend to what God is doing in my, this, you know, this is the language in Psalm 16, right? There's the work the Lord is doing. Then there's the instruction that my heart has given me because my heart is hearing and sensing what the Lord is doing. And if my heart loses touch with the Lord, then I lose touch with myself. And I I always have to come back to knowing myself and knowing the Lord, loving my neighbor as I love myself. Like all of those things are integrally bound up together. Like there's just no, if you separate them, you you deface your own experience of life. And I, I think one image that might help is as sinful people, I mean, part of what it means to be sinful, sinning, sinned against creatures, it's like we're, we're asleep dreaming that no one is there while we're actually being held by our father or held by our husband or held by our friend, right? 
we're dreaming about a separation that is actually, as you said, one, I wouldn't say that one that we created so much as one in which we were deceived into believing. Mm. Right? But it, we're in that kind of nightmarish state of no one is here, but actually God is holding us and, you know, soothing us while we're having that nightmare. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like being in the womb and thinking you're alone. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it ex- being in the womb and thinking you're alone is like <laughs> what's true for us. Right? We, we are in God with an even more direct intimacy. But yes, I mean, that, that's right. Um, I, I'd like to, I, I don't want to leave this, this Hosea text behind. Sorry. My house is very full right now. So if you hear, if you're hearing lots of noises in the back, I have noise canceling headphones on and I'm hearing stuff. Um, I don't want to leave this Hosea text behind, but we'll, we'll come back to it. I'm, I'm certain if we can though, let's just look at the, the Romans text. We can also reference that track one passage, um, from, from Genesis, there's lots of, uh, of, of overlap here, right? So Romans four, it begins in verse 13. Um, the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Um, if the inheritance of the law were to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. But where there is, uh, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. And then it, you know, kind of goes on to recount this, this, um, this story. Well, can I say something about how that before you go on how that connects to what we were just describing? Oh yeah, please, please. Because, and it, and it's related too to this mercy sacrifice. That, that keeps coming up in these texts. Like I desire, right, which is going to come up in the gospel text, right? Because sacrifice is about, it's what in the nightmare we think we have to do to close the distance that God, that keeps God away from us. That keep, that keeps us at risk. But mercy is to act as if God is simply our character, our being our nature. Like when I'm merciful, I'm acting with God. Like my life now is taking on the shape of God's life. I become the, the the direction of God's mercy for someone, right? The voice, the sound of it, the, the face of it, the presence of it. I'm acting in congruity with God's action. Sacrifice. I'm, at least imagined in these ways, I'm coming at cross purposes to God, assuming that God is a, and again, in the Hosea passage, that God is a kind of force of nature that I have to find ways of controlling. I have to order my life around the early and the latter rains. I have to order my life around the rising of the sun and the setting of it. So if I imagine God in those ways, God's wrath is impersonal and ab- not, not so much abstracted as generalized, then like the weather is, 
then I control that by setting patterns, developing tools, finding ways of living that kind of harness nature and use it to my good. Right? And that's why God is grieved. Oh, Ephraim, oh, Judah. Like, I'm not a force of nature. I am your life. I'm, I am your, your father. I am your friend. I am your mother. I am your sister, your brother. I am your life. I'm bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And you're so estranged from me, but that also means you're estranged from yourself and therefore from your neighbors. You can't love your neighbors without having that kind of attunement to your own heart. And you can't have that attunement to your heart without your heart being in agreement with me. And, and so your lives are just spinning apart, breaking apart, shattering over and over and over again. And the law is intended to bring attention to all that. Like wrath is like the, you know, when you've harmed your body in some way, I'm in physical therapy right now. So this is top of mind, but my physical therapist will, will tell me, you know, do these exercises and tell me where your body is angry. Tell me where your body is angry, because that's going to tell us something about where the damage is. Right. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about what God's wrath is, right? It's, it's where the damage we've done is expressing itself. Like we've lived so foolishly. We've done these wrongs to each other. We've not done what is right for each other. And therefore there is wrath, right? Not relationally that God is disgusted with us and, washing his hands of responsibility for us, right? That's what we do to God, not what God does to us. But it is kind of our nature telling us, no, 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 like this is not well, right? This is, and that's what the aches and the pain, the burning, the, the stabbing pain, the, the fever, all, all of that, it's, it's testifying to the gone wrongness. Like this is what your sins are doing. This is, this is how, your sins are damaging you and other people. But, and this is, you know, to Paul's point in Romans, the law brings all that to the surface, right? It's diagnostic. But faith is that awareness of God as our life. And this is why Abraham can believe. Who cares if my body is too old or Sarah's body is too old? God's life is omnipotent, right? God's life is infinite. And so he believes and doesn't stumble in believing. Yeah. Bill, did you want to jump in there? I personally would like, I don't know. I, I would, in full transparency, I am working through what Chris just said. <laughs> so um, I, I, wa I want to hear you. Like if, if we were on the phone, this would be the moment where I would say, Chris, can you, can you keep saying some more things about this? Like I, my, my brain is getting there and uh, it's exciting. I just, I just want to hear you continue to talk a little bit more about it personally. Yeah. Uh, Brew, do you want to direct, you want to stay here or you want to come back to it? Nope. No, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Let's just let's let's stay here. So I, I think this like 
Galatians 3 and Romans 4, this is where Paul kind of reworks the Abraham story. And in both places, he he insists that the everything rests on faith. Everything comes down to what it means to have the faith that Abraham had. Okay. Yep. And I, I think what's being suggested here, especially in relation to these other texts, is what leads Paul to make this contrast between the law and faith. Right? That the law brings wrath, but it cannot bring about the, the fulfillment of the promise. Mm-hmm. And faith is the way in which the promise, the promise of blessing for all, you know, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And and not just the promise of blessing, right? And this is, again, there are a lot of texts, right, that Paul is kind of bringing to, to the fore here. But you can see this very explicitly in Galatians 3, that the promise to Abraham is that you will be a blessing to all nations. But what kind of blessing? What is the blessing you will bring? The blessing is the blessing of the Spirit. That is God's own nature and character and identity and being, that's what actually Abraham is going to share. It's the promise of the spirit that is the blessing of Abraham that is shared with all nations. Not just that I'm, you know, quote unquote, in right standing with God, but that I am truly righted with the rightness of God. Like God's life becomes mine. God's holiness becomes mine. God's wisdom becomes mine. And that takes time. That's what the distance is about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this question. So, again, speaking of distance, verse 16, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and then this sentence and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Yeah. Then, not only to the adherence of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So whenever, so like from, from the way that I grew up, that first part, that this promise will be guaranteed to all his offspring sounds like one thing. Then a couple words later, to the ones who share the faith of Abraham sounds like something different. Mm. Right? So mm. I've heard that taught like it's guaranteed to all his offspring. It's, but then I've heard it said, but it's guaranteed only to those offspring that share the faith of Abraham, which sounds like we're creating a new law again. Well, we are. Yeah, exactly. We're we're in in this. Well, we're, we're creating a kind of system we can control, like what we might call a religious system. Either way, you can do that with law. You can do that with grace. That yes, absolutely. That's that's certainly right. I think what Paul is doing, if you read it closely, right? He's he's saying everything depends on faith, right? In order that the promise may rest on grace, the guarantee is in the grace. Right? In the language of Hebrews, God swears by himself because he can swear by no greater. And God cannot lie. So, in, in, and of course, Hebrews there is drawing on Genesis again, the story of Abraham, where when God makes covenant with Abraham, he puts Abraham to sleep. Like Abraham starts the ritual and then God is like, okay, now you, you go to sleep. And when Abraham wakes up, God is kind of finishing the liturgy for him. And this 
this is what I think Abraham, this is his revelation. All of, all of, all of us are guaranteed God will be God. But God is going to be God. That never changes. As we inherit the promise by faith, we come to experience what is guaranteed. And we don't come to experience what is guaranteed without receiving the promise through faith. But it remains guaranteed because God's got all the time in the world and some, right? Like God is endlessly creative. No matter what we do, he has other moves to make. So what God is doing in this kind of, and, and we're back to Hosea, right? That move of I will withdraw to my place is God dancing with us, like setting us up for our response to be for our good. We talked about this, you know, several weeks ago, maybe months ago now about what happens when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And then the, the very next words he says are said to the other disciples, which means Jesus turned and put Peter behind him. Like he said, get behind me. That's where a disciple belongs. And then he turned so that Peter is behind him. That God is constantly doing that. Everything God does right. is, so to speak, setting us up for the right response to God. And if we disobey, then God reacts, so to speak. That's how we experience it. In a way that sets us up for a right response. And that, that is just who God is. That's not something God decides to do or not, but that that's just who God is and cannot be false to himself. And that's where the guarantee lies, right? The, the faith and the promise bring us into awareness, bring us into a full cognizant share in what is true of God and what God wants and knows to be true of us. And Abraham somehow comes aware of that, but he, he comes aware. L look at the language, right? Talks about the presence of the God in whom mm -hmm. he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Right? That, that's the God Abraham knows. The God who raises the dead and creates from nothing. And he comes aware of that reality as the grounding reality for all realities. And that just is faith, right? Like faith is just that awareness that grace is deepest. It's always you could, deepest. You could argue, it says, and me and you have talked about this before, it says in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. And then it says when he considered his own body or Sarah's body. And then it says in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. And so you could, you, depending on how you read verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. You could say he did not weaken in the faith, even as he was having unbelief that didn't make him waver. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even say it was unbelief. I would say it's, he wasn't fooling himself about what his body was. Right. He wasn't, this wasn't kind of positive reinforcement language. You know, he's not saying, trying to say <laughs> of himself, 
I am capable. He's when coming he closer to himself. The, exactly. The more truly self-aware he is, my body is dead. The more he's coming in touch with the fact there is one who raises the dead. Right, And it's that kind of truthful self-awareness that opens out on God-awareness. That's really good. I hope somebody heard that. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. denying reality. It's the right. It's it's the opposite, right? It's what I need is a full, clear-eyed, you know, sober estimate of reality, with confidence in this God, to which that reality answers. And and it's that last part that we call faith. Right, that when, you know, because scripture directs us to it. You know, so like in this line, he considers his body, he considers the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And I love that phrasing because it's, he understands that barrenness in her womb is a characterization. Like Sarah has a womb and right now it's, it is barren. But the creator of that womb and the, and the woman whose womb it is, is not barren and therefore she's not left to that barrenness. Mm. And, and it's, it's that, but it's, it's his awareness of barrenness in the light of his awareness of this God who calls things into being from nothing that makes it so that he can hope. I mean, that not makes it, that is his hope. But again, hope that is seen is not hope. You cannot have hope without this awareness of reality in, in all of its kind of fracturedness and gone wrongness. Like you have to see, yes, Sarah's womb is dead. My body is dead. There is no seed in me. But God is the one who does the unthinkable, the impossible. That, 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 by the way, is the glory given to God. Like we, 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 we throw that phrase around all the time, like give glory to God. But which glory are you giving? Right. If the glory I give to God is you're making my life go the way I want it to go. I mean, that's not God's glory. Right. That, that's an image I'm projecting onto God. God's glory is who is he? Like who is God actually? And Abraham knows him, actually. He's the creator. He's the one who raises the dead. He's the one revealed in the face of Jesus. Revealed in the face of the dead Jesus on the cross. Which, back to this point, right, that's recurring, this I desire uh, mercy and not sacrifice, how Israel and Judah, right, are going to naming God in this way, let us return to the Lord. He's torn. He'll heal. He's struck down. He'll bind up. He'll revive. And then like the, like the dawn, like the showers, right? This, all of this is this kind of, it's, it's still, it's, it's not getting at who God is, right? It's, there's a devotion there. Right. It's, it's treating God as a force of nature. God is, 
God is dependable in one way and unpredictable in others, but he is a thing. Right. Among others. Among other things. And it's a thing that I have to learn to control by ordering my life in particular ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it's, it's, it's treating God as a kind of reactionary atmosphere, or, you know, environment that I'm navigating all the time. I don't want to make God angry or I want to, I mean, we often hear it said positively. I mean, I, I have wonderful friends who are always sending me clips of preachers saying the most horrifying things. And one last week, someone sent me one of uh, some preacher making a distinction between being blessed and being favored. And I mean, it was you know, tendentious to put it nicely, but what he was pressing that, right, is that it's possible for God not to be angry with you, not to be lashing out in wrath, but to still also not be very happy with you, like, like truly pleased. He even gave the illustration of, you know, if you tell your kid to clean their room and they do, they're blessed. But if your kid comes to you and says, Hey, I cleaned my room. Is there anything else I can do? Then they're favored. And he was arguing that this is how we should learn to relate to God, right? Like that we should find a way to kind of make God's life better because that will in turn mean that God makes our lives better. And I, that, I mean, that's blasphemy. That's not God's glory. Hmm. That, that is, I mean, it, it's, it's not only kind of silly and cheap, it grossly, terrifyingly distorts the character of God. God is not, does not need us right, to find ways to, and, and by the way, we can, if we hear things that way, when Jesus says, the prophets report him saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What we hear is, oh, that's how I will get favor. I'll show mercy. And, and to Bill's point, we turn mercy into a sacrifice. We turn right. grace into a law. But his, the point is not, I, you know, what would really make me happy is not if you did sacrifices. What would really make me happy, if you want to go from blessing to favor, then show mercy. It's, I desire mercy because that means you are who you are. I, I was talking to my daughter today. Um, she's been staying with my mom and dad. And I, I said to her, Zoe, you sound like yourself today. And that makes me so happy. Like, I'm I'm so glad I can hear it in your voice. You're just, you're, you're yourself. And it's so good to hear. Like, that's desiring mercy. Right? What God, what delights God is simply up for us to be. And when we can't settle with that, when we think that there's something else that needs to be added to that sentence, that's where the trouble comes. So a question would be, in the gospel text, what does, how do you interpret this phrase in light of what you're saying? Right? So Jesus turned and seeing the woman who had touched him, she, he said, take heart, daughter. 
your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Yep. So again, you can hear how people will say, okay, she had to muster up this faith for her life to get better. Yep. So what, what is going, what's not, this is how I like to ask you questions. What's not happening there that we often think is happening there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sir. It's certainly that again, imagining faith as a work that I, that I find a way of manufacturing for myself and therefore accessing God's blessing slash favor. And we absolutely hear this text that way, right? That we have needs. Jesus is just kind of going about his own business. But if you really are a person of faith, you will get in Jesus face about it. Or if you can't get in his face, you'll crawl up behind him and touch the hem of his robe, right? You'll find a way to get to Jesus, but he's just going on about his business, right? Like he's not coming to you. That cannot, I mean, if the gospel is true, that just can't be true at all. Like one of those things is true and the other is false. If Jesus is again, just a force of nature that I have to find a way of accessing, then he isn't the living God. He isn't, he isn't the one revealed in the face of Jesus. He isn't father, friend, lover, so on. He's just a force that I can either die by or live by as I order my life. In that sense, that's how I think we read that text. Jesus is just a force of healing that's walking by. And this woman finds a way to harness it. But she, she, she finds a way to, to touch it. But what's actually happening, right, is that Jesus is doing what's best for her and what's best for Jairus and what's best for the crowd and what's best for the evangelist who's going to write this gospel and those of us who are going to read it. Like he's acting in a way that brings her and everyone in this story and the writer and everyone who reads the story into alignment with each other. He's creating the right kind of spacing and rhythm for awareness to come to all of us at once about how our lives are interdependent not and we're interdependent in and upon him. So when he says, your faith has made you whole, he's teaching her about what his grace in her life has been doing and is doing for her. He's naming what he's just done for her in a way that gives it to her. He made her whole. And he made her whole in such a way that it gave her agency. Because their lives are not in competition. Absolutely. They're one life. Right. His faithfulness to her is identical with her faith in him. Right. And Jesus is the call of God and the creaturely response. Absolutely. And so when, when she touches the hem of his garment, right, she's coming to herself and he's telling her that your faith, right? He's empowering her. He's giving her her personhood back. So you could almost say that take heart, your faith has made you well is not a prescription. It's a promise. I would say it's a description. It's a description. But it's a description of what his grace has done in her. Right? It's not a description of what she's achieved. 
and, and again, these things are not really similar, but they're easy to confuse if we don't slow down. Like Paul is constantly critiquing those who boast. He talks about like no one has any right to boast before the Lord. But there is a kind of confidence we are to have. Like do not throw away your confidence. So there is a way in which if she achieved this, then she will boast. I, I pressed through the crowd. I don't know what happened to the rest of you. If you're not if you're not healed, it's because you didn't press through. That is a sign of boasting, and you've reduced, you know, law and grace down to mechanism, down to system. But faith has become a work in the way that I, I said that before. But what's actually happening here is Jesus is caring for her in such a way that she can have confidence. Faith is her awareness that Jesus is her life. Now she's going to walk away from this knowing that she, she didn't just happen to be there when Jesus walked by. She's not just fortunate. And she didn't achieve that. What all the good that's in her life is his goodness being shared with her. And to know that is to be able to, she's able to live with confidence. What he's, what he's doing, right, is not just healing her body. He's restoring her soul. I mean, this is... Right. So in our prayer book, you know, every single every single time we gather and now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say it's that kind of boldness. Right. Yes. It's that it's that kind of confidence. Yes. Yes. Which has nothing whatsoever to do with boasting. Yeah, no. I think this is cool. There, I think I think there's a similar story that illustrates exactly what you're saying. And it's the 10 lepers. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but interestingly enough, at the very end of the 10 leper story, when only one comes back and says, thank you. Jesus says, you know, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he says, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, here's the thing. The other nine are still healed. Yes. The other nine are healed. So I think this illustrates what you're saying, where this one person who came back to say thank you, he's the one, he's the person who gets to hear what's true of him in a way that the other nine didn't get to hear what's true of them. Yes, exactly. And he goes away with an awareness of who he is in relation to Jesus and who Jesus is to him that they don't have. And you could even say he, in this story, he leaves with that awareness for them. Yes, absolutely. But the point is they're all healed. Yep. Nine of them, and, and so that idea where he came back to give glory to God is this is this similar to that glory that Abraham is giving to God in in Romans yeah, four? Absolutely, that, right. Faith is giving to God the glory that is God's. Faithlessness is giving to God the glory that I wish God had. Oh yeah, I would want God to have. Mm-hmm. Right. If I glorify God with the image of my own desires projected out to the superlatives, 
that's not truly faithful. It's not truly glorifying. To glorify God is to is to see Him as He is and to and to delight in that. That God is like this. So in that way, this is why, right? He goes out blessed to be a blessing. Yeah. Right to tie it back to the Genesis passage. Yeah. Genesis passage. Yeah. <sighs> I, I I love this so much, guys. I'm sorry. I've got to I've got to wrap up. I have somewhere I have to go. But I, I just you know before we go, I just want to come back to this Hosea text super briefly because part of what I hear in it, you know, what am I what am I to do with you? Uh, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? I mean, we can skip to Hosea 14, right, and see see God's forgiveness that comes. But I think sort of expanding outward, of course, what we find is this response to the cosmos, right? What, what am I going to do with you, creation? And what we find at the heart of it is, right, the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Like a God who comes closer to us, well, nearer to us. Yes, that's right. Well, I, I, we have to be careful there. I agree. I agree. But we, what we don't want to suggest is that God is distant and right. Jesus crosses that distance yeah, yeah, yeah. in no, the incarnation. No. What the mm-hmm. incarnation does is reveal and establish what is the case. Right. Right. For God and for us. Mm-hmm. Jesus is not crossing a distance that exists for the Father and the Spirit and us. Yeah, yeah. Jesus somehow bridges. There is no distance because Jesus is the son of this Father and their spirit. Like that that may seem subtle, but it really it makes all the difference. And is that can, where we absolutely. say is that where we say like oversimplistically the sacraments, like me and you were talking before, Chris, the sacraments are the ways in which God reminds us of his very near presence. Absolutely. Exactly. And these are, he reminds us in countless ways or tries to remind us, but these are instituted ways, kind of markers that have been shared with the community. They kind of know if you can't see anything else, you can at least see these. And these tell us that there are countless ways that this happens. Absolutely. So the Eucharist is the Eucharist. But if I'm partaking rightly, it's telling me to look at every meal. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pay attention to every meal. Same thing with, you know, with all the sacraments. Which is actually beautiful to say it that way, because if the sacrament of confirmation is an authoritative reminder that God exists in every confirmation and affirmation how powerful are our words to each other at that point mm-hmm. absolutely right? well they're the words of god yeah and this is why like when jensen's talking about absolution you know how do i know that god has forgiven me well bill just said i was forgiven and god's not going to let bill's words fall to the ground those were those were god's words and like the the participation that we are in John of Damascus, we are co-embodiments of the divine nature. 
that's who we are. And at least we, that, that's who we are. That's not necessarily how we live, but that's who we are. And coming, you know, pushing on to know him is about coming aware of that so that we can cooperate with it. So we can, we can be intentional and purposeful, you know, come into alignment with it, but that is who we are. We can't not be that. That's a good conversation, guys. I appreciate it, man. These, these propers, these simple little summertime texts will take you places, huh? <laughs> Can I say one more thing? I, I love the his God's question, what shall I do with you? You know, the answer is already given in the one who's asking the question. Right? And it, it's an invitation to consider, mm. what will you do? <laughs> what will you do? And like to hear this, these these are Jesus' words. What shall I do with you? And it's such a good question to ask, to come to the table with, mm-hmm. right? What will you do with us? The, the body of Christ, the bread yeah. of heaven. Mm. Yeah, and I think what what we hear is so. Like when we say that, I mean, that it's translated that way on purpose, right? We say it out of exasperation. Like, what am I going to do with you? What Jesus is saying is, what am I going to do with you? You need to think about what it is that I'm going to be doing in partnership with you, with you as my body. What am I going to do with you? Like when you realize that, what I'm going to be doing with you, then you are living lives of steadfast love. Like you're living lives of mercy, not sacrifice. You're living lives of faith. Well, Brewer, why don't you seal us? Sorry, I realized my, my mic was off. I just asked you, will you pray for us, Chris? <laughs> of course, yeah. Let us pray. Father, you are good. And in Jesus, you've, you've made your goodness our goodness. And you are satisfied and delighted for us simply to be. That's why we are. And we... We ask just that you would let us come to be as happy with our being as you are. As satisfied with our existence as you are. And thank you. Thank you for being exactly what we need and for creating everything we need to come to know you and to know ourselves and to know one another and to share all those goods that you've made for us to share and to share your life. Help us to breathe that in, to drink it in. Amen. Amen. Peace. I'll see you guys.